Morning. Okay, this morning we're in Acts 20, and we did some work on, I think, verse 9, 9 and 10 and 11. We'll start right there. Where the man fell asleep while Paul was preaching. We did that. Okay. Well, let's begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for the fellowship that we have with you and one another. Thank you for forgiveness of sins. And we do pray for our nation as we're instructed in your word. And as there are elections coming up, we pray that um, as much as possible, we may have opportunities for the gospel to be free and to live and serve you in a place where law, law is upheld and evils restrained and boundaries exist according to your plan. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, this morning we covered this. Now, I did mention, did I go back? I think what I have different on this slide now is I looked up some of the cases to make sure uh, the uh, allusions to the Old Testament and things in Luke are valid, and they most definitely are. There's a young man named Eutychus sitting on a windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep, and as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep, fell down from the third floor, picked up dead. Paul went down and fell on him, and after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled, for his life is in him. Now, on the slide we have, uh, there's allusions to things happened in Luke, Luke 7, 11 through 15, where uh, he went to a city called Nain, disciples with him, and as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and he was, she was a widow, a sizable crowd was with her. Verse 13, and when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion, said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, which, by, by the way, would have made him unclean. But uh, he's clean by, by being who he is. And the bears came uh, to a halt, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, one thing that you need to realize about the different resurrections, whether it's Lazarus or this one or any other one, including the one here of Eutychus, is this is not the same as the resurrection of Christ. Here's the difference. He is raised immortal, and resurrections of people like Lazarus they die again. So people died, they're back to life, they die yet again. The future resurrection will give us immortal bodies. That's the difference. But this demonstrates God's power over death, demonstrates who Christ is, and it also, even in Luke, there are allusions, and we won't go back here for the sake of time, but we have 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24. You want to jot that down in your notes. 1 Kings 17, 17 to 24. 
Something like that happened with Elijah, where someone, I think it was a widow, I went back and looked at it this week, and someone was brought back to life. And then in 2 Kings 4, 32 to 37, the same happened with Elisha. Okay, so this is showing that Jesus is truly the one promised in the Old Testament and has this sort of power. And we also saw on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke, I believe chapter 9, Elijah and Moses are there. Now in Acts, uh, excuse me, that was Luke chapter 7. And then uh, I won't go into Acts or Luke 8 right now, but another incident happened there. Oh, I know what it was. That was where he was supposed to get there because this person's daughter was very sick and he was too late because he spent his time healing a woman who had an issue of blood and those that, which would have made her unclean perpetually. And then he said he got there and she's raised. But all these resurrections are not to perfection, but to back to a mortal body that will yet die again. But it's an indication of the person of Christ. Now in Acts 9, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is also called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened that she fell sick and died, and they washed her body later in an upper room. And this was at Joppa. And, and there, in verse 40, Peter sent them all out, knelt down and prayed, turning to the body and said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. She saw Peter and sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, calling the saints and widows, presented her alive. Now, again, evidence that Peter is truly the apostle Jesus Christ, that the apostles are sent by him, and that God was at work demonstrating the validity of the message preached by Peter and the others. And this happens here with Paul, showing he also is an apostle. And these are unique things. There are people who, like uh, uh, Todd Bentley, who just work overtime trying to make sure this happens again. And they had TV cameras brought to Lake, was it in Florida? Where is that place, Lakeland? There, he was claiming people were bringing the dead into the meeting and they were being raised. This, yeah, and nobody could verify that it actually happened. We don't have to try to do things. We need to preach Christ. God does what he does through providence, and it, the power is no less. God still heals people. God still takes people off their deathbed and brings them to life, I being one of them. And we don't have to fear that if we don't make a big splash about how great and powerful we are, then God is at work. It's just flat out not true. We need to believe the promises of God. But the point here is that this is a miracle and it proves that messianic salvation is on the scene of history. 
and that the true apostles are there and God is using them and they're speaking the truth. Now, back now to where we should be, Acts 20, 11 through 12. And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak. So they just kept having their teaching. And because there was an urgency to go, he wanted to get to Jerusalem. And then left, and they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. So breaking bread, conversing, and comfort are three terms used here. And the word talked, homileo, where we get our word homily, or to, to give a homily, it's a verb, is used elsewhere in, the, in Luke Acts. One place it's used is in Luke 24, 14, and 15. And the four times that word is used in the New Testament are all in Luke Acts. Luke had a robust vocabulary of the Greek language. And there's every reason to believe, by the way, turn off your phone because I'm going to do that right now. There, see, I'm a good role model. I turn my phone off. Not that anybody calls me. It's pretty rare. And uh, Luke is with Paul on these travels. He knows the places. He knows details. And he knows things that indicate he's an eyewitness. The claim that he was educated is very much clearly true. His, his very articulate use of the Greek language, his way of writing shows an educated person. The details show that he's an eyewitness, his willingness to interview witnesses and make sure he has things right is very clear. Also, one of the ways the Greek literature works, even in other type of literature, is that the key points are given through the mouth of people who give speeches. Okay? So the speech is given. The word is spoken. And this is how Luke works. If you go back to the beginning of Luke, key people, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they speak. And what's spoken is uh, words about the coming of messianic salvation. So the same thing happens here. And I did give some homework last week, and it had to do with speeches. So be thinking about that. I believe we'll get to that. So they were uh, in Luke 24, 14, and 15, and they were talking, here's our word, with each other about all these things which had taken place. What was that? Crucifixion of Christ, his rejection, his resurrection, and so on. While they were talking, discussing Luke 24, 15, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with him. Now, if you remember in Luke 24, they weren't really sure what was going on. They became believers that this was the resurrection of the resurrected Christ because of what happens. They became witnesses. And so that is an amazing thing where they're talking with Jesus 
well, didn't you know what's going on? Where are you from? Well, here's the resurrected Christ teaching them. Wow. And so then he explained to them all the way through Tanakh the scriptures about himself. And they said later, our heart was burning within us as he did this. Then in Acts 24, 24 through 27, it says, but some days later, Felix, this is, this is in Acts, not Luke, arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul, heard him speak about faith in Christ. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now look at Acts 24, 25. Go ahead and turn there. One of the things you'll see is that in Luke, the things that are thematic are spoken to everyone in one way or another. And that's why I wanted you to look at those long messages by Paul, the one in the synagogue, the one at Athens, and then there'll be one to the elders from Ephesus. These themes keep coming up, okay? Acts 24, 25. Festus, your Felix, is a civil authority. His wife was Jewish. Verse 25, he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Did he go to the purpose-driven seminar? (laughs) No, maybe he hadn't heard Robert Schuller about self-esteem. You're telling this guy what he doesn't want to hear. There's a few politicians that could listen to that in our day, huh? Felix became frightened. It scared him. And said, go away for the president. When I find time, I'll summon you. We're discussing there, dialegomai, a word that we looked at, giving reasons, logic. This is what is going on. Verse 26. At the same time, too, he was hoping the money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often, converse with him. Here's our word, homileo. So Paul's a prisoner. He comes, he tells him about judgment and self-control. Go away. Well, maybe I'll get some money. Come back and talk to me some more. So Paul continued to speak. And then verse 27, but after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by poor Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So there were the same themes come up in these interactions with civil authorities. Now, when the Lord said that you'll be brought before kings and authorities earlier, what was that about? What was it for? He said, for a testimony about me. Okay, so the reason Christians are brought before civil authorities is for a testimony about Christ. And that's exactly what happened throughout Acts again and again. One of them finally said, well, you're almost persuading me to be a Christian. That's what they did. So this we can show from Luke Acts and... 
I think we should take it seriously in regard to our own lives and uh, what's important in the world we live in. Yes. Well, it's, it's just amazing that God uses everything for his glory. Amen. I mean, if you look at the fabric of God's word and you read through these things, you're like, well, wait a minute. Why was Paul, I mean, God should have sprung him. Why was he sitting in prison? You know, but that's what God does. He does everything for his glory. So Paul's there under bondage, and he's called up, and he testifies of Christ. That's exactly yeah. Christ's will. They bring him back, and he kept saying the same thing. Now, doesn't that kind of uh, remind you of things in Daniel and elsewhere? They kept telling the truth. Let's go on here, 13 and 14. As we were going ahead to the ship, but we going ahead to the ship. So he'd been all night teaching. A guy's raised from the dead, kept teaching, because they had to sail at a certain time to get to a certain place. Set sail for Asos, intending from there to take Paul on board. So he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us, notice Luke is present, at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. So I point out these are the details of an eyewitness. Do we want to see a bunch of slides about this? I have two here. I have the whole slideshow that shows these places. Place, 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 place. Roads, columns. What do you want? Slideshow? It won't take long. I'll show you what's available. I'm not trusting that people are going to be able to find good seminaries because of the way church history has gone. So I want to make sure we equip the saints and that people know where they can get the resources. This is something that has maps and so on. I want to go down. What, what verse were we on here about? Verse 12, 13? Look at all these places. Some of these I've shown you. Well worth the money to get these. If you're going to be a teacher, look at all the people. You know, things haven't changed much in the Middle East through 2,000 years. Uh, Kenneth Bailey. Here's those pots, remember? Late in the night, look at the pots there. See, the oil goes in there, the wick goes in the little thing on the end, and that's how what they were doing at uh, that upper room where they were being taught by Paul late into the night, and the guy fell off the sill. Some people say, well, there was carbon monoxide poisoning. No, that's not the point. <laughs> Let me get down to the verses we're looking at. Here we go. There's a young person, a kid. Here's verse 11. Bakeries, bread sellers. Here we go. Now, this one I think I had. I don't know that I can. Here's some of the places. Which one is that? Troas? And here is my. Okay, that one was just mentioned. Then we're going to go down here. 
there's Ephesus, but they actually meet south of there, not actually in Ephesus as we go forward. So that's where we're heading. These are correct, geographically correct, and real places. Luke's an eyewitness. He's there for part of it, part of Acts. Paul goes by land. They can go by ship as well. It says here, this map shows the general route that Paul and his companions took from Troas to Miletus, as described in verses 13 through 15. There's a picture of a ship, mosaic. Here he is, Bui uh, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Asos. Here's a picture of the harbor. Somewhere near here, Paul's friends departed Troas for Asos. The voyage would have covered about 38 miles and may have taken two days. Paul's walk to Asos uh, uh, is another issue here. Let's see if we have something here. But we going ahead to the ships to sail for Asos. So here's the coastline to the west of Asos. Real place. 20 miles. Was tr- Paul's trip from Troas to Asos is about 20 miles in a straight line, but probably longer by road, passing around the mountains between Troas and Asos. The ship coming from Troas would have traveled along the coast, shown on the left side of the photo as it approached the harbor. Okay, that's that one. Look at that. I get lots of pictures like that because I go out fishing before the sun comes up. (laughs) Paul's companions may have arrived at the harbor of Asos late in the day and could have witnessed a similar sunrise to this one. It's amazing what's out there on the lake when, you, when you're out early. The harbor where Paul's co- companions docked is no longer visible, but it was in, in approximately the same location as the modern harbor. The ancient city was built on the hill above the harbor. Asos had the only good harbor on the 50 miles of the north coast of the Adramatan Gulf. This made Asos a key shipping station through the Trode, whatever that means. All right, so here are some of the places. I don't want to labor long over this, but Paul chose to travel by land. So this says here, Roman bridge over a river. So that would have been there. They made a, so they made a bridge over a river 2,000 years ago. Isn't it amazing what they could do back in those days? The engineering. Human beings are created in the image of God. And as long as humans have existed, they're the same sort of beings. And humans live by reason, language, rationality, and engineering's existed as long as humans have existed. And I believe in It's very clear. We should know this. What the Bible says about human beings is validated in real history. What does the Bible say about human beings? They were created in the image of God, but fallen. 
So what do we see? The image of God means that we're rational beings, that we have understanding of good and evil. There are laws that people, as it says in Romans 1, they know these things are are right or wrong, but yet we fall into the wrong. The ability to reason, to converse, to use languages, the things that happened, the flood as in the annals of even the most ancient people, there's a flood. And from Noah, the earth is repopulated, the table of nations, the boundaries, the different languages, all of this is validated by what really happens. And when we look at the history we see today, this is one of the roads they made, we see the same things. That whatever seems to be progress, be it engineering, the one thing that's most prominent is the ability to store and retrieve information. That now doesn't seem likely to be lost. The Dark Ages was a really bad time, but now we have access to all this information, but it doesn't change the human heart. It says in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who could know it? I, the Lord, know the heart. So that humans are created in God's image and are not evolved from beasts is clear and obvious. But that, but the pagans believe other things. And that there is sin, there will be a future judgment, and Christ was raised from the dead. That's our gospel. Here it says, um, the main temple of the city, the God of healing here, We're still in verse 13. This view looks to the west from the Acropolis of Asos. Paul arrived at Asos from this direction, possibly traveling along the Roman road shown in the following slide. So here's the road. Till there. They were pretty good. How long do roads last in Minnesota? <laughs> Not very long. There's the road. There's the road. The road. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Asos reaches Zenith in the centuries before Paul's visit. The city had been founded nearly a thousand years earlier, but is best known as the home of the famous philosophical school in the fourth century BC. Aristotle lived at Asos for several years, having moved there from Athens. At Asos, he married and so on. So this is a famous place. Paul himself is where Aristotle had been. Jessica, earlier I was mentioning that the Greeks, uh, the, the best writers, you, key speeches reveal the theme. Do you want to mention, you've studied out during your homeschooling. Yeah, so, and that's typical of Greek literature going all the way back to Homer. The speeches reveal the meaning of the text. If there's a speech in Greek literature, that means you need to pay attention because that's that's where you're really going to find the meaning. It's also interesting when we read Luke Acts, if the Holy Spirit comes on someone, okay, we know we need to pay attention to this speech. In other Greek literature, you pay attention to who is speaking. So if Nestor is speaking, 
he's the man of wisdom and he usually comes in right at, you know, things are about to go really, really bad. And then you have a speech by Nestor and everyone listens and your conflict is resolved. Uh, If Cassandra speaks, she's 100% right and nobody will ever listen to her. So once you, in Greek literature, once you pick up on the speeches and especially the types that are present in the speeches, you can start to really read Greek literature with more depth. And that's very true in Luke Acts. The speeches are are really the clue to the meaning. And who is speaking really matters. Right. Hey, what happened? Yeah. Like the guy who claimed to be a god, not a man, then he was smitten dead. Yeah. It reveals something. By the way, I think Andy got here. Okay. So there, well, anyhow, these are real places, real people, real issues, and so on. Let me go get out of this and back to where I was. So I wanted to show you what resources we have. I already showed you a couple of these. All right. Now, we go to Acts 20, 15 through 16. Acts 20, 15 through 16. And I wanted Jessica to share that, by the way, because that really makes Luke Acts come alive. If you realize Luke's ability to write in the Greek language using conventions that were familiar to them for centuries. And if someone gives a speech, that is revealing what's really important. So I did give you some homework, and we'll get to that in a moment. Read the long speech that Paul gave in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. That was part of the homework. Read the long speech that Paul gave at Athens, and then the third such speech will be given to the Ephesian elders. And they reveal a lot, so we'll look at that in a bit. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So on the way to Jerusalem, that's a theme in Luke Acts, from Luke 9.51 all the way to the entry into Jerusalem is the travel narrative. And it's given in Luke in reverse antithetical parallel order. It goes boom, 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 boom to chapter 13 and then in reverse order goes boom, boom, boom back and they end up in Jerusalem on the way to Jerusalem. And if you look across at the parallels they're the same themes. And I have that, a document that shows that somewhere. This is amazing. This is amazing. And once you see that the beginning, the middle and the end are what's important. And what's at the beginning, the middle, and the end? Jerusalem rejects the prophets that are sent to her. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be rejected, and that shows up in the travel narrative. And here in Acts, Paul is, we find out later, 
go to Jerusalem and he's going to be rejected. And then a prophet even said that was going to happen. Agabus. So it says in Acts 20, 22 through 23, a little preview here. And now behold, bound by the spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bounds and afflictions await me. Do you see the parallel? Jesus is unique, but Paul is going to show uh, the focus in Luke Acts, by the way, is about Jerusalem and the destruction. Matthew has more material about the future, although it also includes this idea. And so Luke is really focused on what is going to happen in Jerusalem. Now, what's not mentioned here in this particular section, but it is in various places in the epistles, Paul is gathering money for a collection to bring for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem, for they had a famine. And he talks about that a lot of different places. But things get so out of hand that by the time he gets to Jerusalem, that's not even mentioned until later after he's arrested. The collection. It was the main idea, but it's not what happens because the rejection took precedent over even the collection for the saints. Okay? There we go. Yeah, I was oh. just going to say that uh, if the Holy Spirit used Luke, the Oscar Wilde of his day, to, uh, to very clearly put down the locations, the historical evidence, and all of that sort of thing, you wonder why Doug Padgett and some of those people say you can't know the word. Um, I, I think I do know why. Because they believe in panentheism. They have adopted Eastern religion. See, the thing I've noticed in researching the various things I've written about is that there's a lot of very intelligent people who are on missions, and they they do know enough theology and facts, but they don't care because they have a more important agenda in their mind. I believe it's because they're in fact, unbelievers, or not born of God. And so, in the case of emergent, some of the more brilliant uh, and articulate people believe this, and they believe that everything's evolving into future paradise on earth without future judgment. So, Doug Padgett would be in that category, Tony Jones, Brian McLaren, and um, to an, I, I covered this in, in my second book. And then I was able to go to their conference. Their main guy was this uh, uh, Jurgen Moltmann, who was a World War II soldier for Hitler, who was later converted to a liberal version of Christianity. It's not for lack of intelligence. It's for lack of faith in the truth. Okay? So paganism, I'll, I'll tell you what the kicker is. The thing that turns people off to the truth of the Bible is the fact that future judgment is coming. And they simply say, we don't like it. In fact, when I 
talked with Doug Padgett. He said, we tend to, and Tony Jones will tell you this, we tend to not like anything that would indicate a fiery end to the cosmos as we know it. We have a theology of hope. And so the thing that they don't like about biblical Christianity is not everybody saved. In this panentheistic universalism, everybody participates. Yes. Um, yeah, to address uh, his question, in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 11.3, Paul's speaking, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray yep. from the simplicity and purity yeah. of devotion to Christ. So, uh, that's what they did. Yeah, okay, that's a good point. What did the serpent do to deceive Eve, what was one thing that he told her? You will not surely die, but you'll gain secret knowledge that God's keeping from you that'll be beneficiary. There's the philosophy right there in very simple terms. You're not going to die. There's no future judgment. You can't believe what God said. You're going to gain something beneficial. Very good reading. That's exactly what's going on. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be able to refute them on their terms. So some would say, well, then ignore them. No, because there are people even in those emergent churches that may be converted if they hear the gospel. So I was willing to, to research and study this so that I could deal with them on their own terms. Paul will do that in Acts 17. Yes, uh, to Luann with the mic. Okay, I just have to say that as I'm hearing all of this and we were reading this thing about uh, Paul speaking to Felix and Felix becoming frightened, um, I'm you know fairly convicted because it talks about when Paul's speaking to Felix and he talked about self-control, that was chosen because Felix is living in a poor relationship. Well, you know, he's living with a divorced woman or they're married or whatever, but it was bad. Well, self-control and coming judgment isn't com going to comfort Felix. Right. And so, but, you know, and you look at just in the readings that we had, too, you know, everywhere Paul went, he cut to the quick. He, yeah. he called out the sin. He did. And when we're talking in, like, with Doug Padgett and panentheism and the trans movement in the churches and, and all of it, I'm convicted because I'm asking myself, am I calling out the sin to people? And that's the part of the gospel we don't like to do. Well, the, the fact of future judgment and the need for repentance Right. Repentance and for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to all the nations in my name. Right. And, and so uh, that's not, uh, someone sent me a book. I read half of it, well, this last week. A lot of Christendom is based on the idea of creating more Christendom. And that making disciples means Christianizing pagans so they act more like we do. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, I've, I've, after reading the f half of this book, I, I think I need to write an, an article about that. 
because I wrote about it in seminary 30 years ago. Matthew 28, they claim, teaches us to disciple geopolitical entities and make them look Christian. So maybe you can help. If anyone wants to study the Great Commission as recorded in Matthew 28, study it uh, clearly in what is Matthew telling us? Is the word ethne, where we get our word ethnic, does that mean a geopolitical entity, whatever that might be, the Netherlands, France, Canada, Mexico, whatever, there's all these geo... Or does it mean all different kinds of people should hear the gospel and be called to repent within those? Okay, but there are many people, very bright and very brilliant, who claim it means geopolitical entities and a whole nation can become Christian. And there, that's a, a big difference. And I wrote about that, and I, th- I need to rewrite. It's a difference. Now, I don't think that's the gospel. Let's just say it's true that future judgment is coming. There will be a resurrection. People who refuse to repent do end up in hell. God does judge. He does restore ethnic national Israel. And even then, there's more rebellion at the end of the millennium. And so if all this is literally true, what is the point of spending all our time and resources trying to make Christianized geopolitical entities? Uh, so I have a different uh, idea about that. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah I, I think... That the beginning of the problem, the root of the problem is Arminianism. Here's why. If, if I choose Christ, I'm saved as an act of my own free will, if I believe that. And I've heard this recently from a guy anyhow, in another church. And, and um, the, the thinking is of the Great Commission. And I grew up in this type of religion, a religion of missions, missions. Send out missionaries, send out missionaries to do exactly as that Great Commission says. If you're saved as an act of your own free will, then other people are saved by my influence. So the Great Commission is about me and my ability to get out there and convince people to accept Christ and to sign on the dotted line or to make some sort of a a, a, a verbal commitment. Or you mean you take an oath to become purposeful? Yes. Oath. That's wonderful. Thank you for that. It's about an oath. It's about. No, I don't actually believe that, but yeah. No, I know, but that, that's the false thing that I'm saying is that okay. if you believe that you're saved as an act of your own free will, you start with that premise, and then the Great Commission goes kitty wampus really well, quick. Whatever makes you make a decision. Let's get to our homework. We've got to get to the homework. We're going to go to verse 17. Where were we here? Okay, so he wants to get to Jerusalem. We covered that. Here's where the homework comes in. And. I, I'm, I'm, I'll focus on the first two. No, the last two. The third one is to the elders, and we're going to cover that in Sunday school as we continue on. So there's three groups addressed in these three long speeches. As we talked about earlier, look at the long speeches by key characters. Early in Acts, it was when the Holy Spirit came upon people. Zacharias, Elizabeth, Mary, Hannah. People speak and it announced the coming of Messianic salvation. But here, it's, these are speeches by Paul. Earlier, there was one by 
Peter, one of the most important, that was on the day of Pentecost. But let's start with Pisidian Antioch. There's our first speech. The first one addressed to Jews at Pisidian Antioch in the synagogue. And that's in uh, Acts 13, 16 to 41. So I printed that out. And did anyone else do this? Otherwise, uh, I was, I know Brian did it. We were kind of comparing some notes. Yes, uh, Eric, go ahead. What did you find when you analyzed that speech? Well, what I, what I noticed is the applicability of, it's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, and this is um, verse 25, because the, well, no, no, 24. Um, and, and this is, uh, well, 22 through 25. I'll try to be quick here. <laughs> and, and basically, Paul in that text is pointing out that Christ crucified is to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. And I never thought much about this, but you see, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. Right. But it was utter foolishness to the Gentiles. So the first speech, Paul speaking to the Jewish people, and yes, Christ was a stumbling block, but at least they understood about substitutionary atonement. Right. He could speak the language right. of the Old Testament. Good. But in the second uh, address, Paul couldn't do that, you see. Because they didn't have the scriptures. They had none of that. So he had to look at where they were and what they understood and start there. Right. That's a good analysis. Th- that's what's going on today, too. We go out and talk to people about the gospel, and we are in a pagan culture, not a Jewish culture. Right. <laughs> okay, okay, thanks. Okay, good. Let me, let me show you some of the themes. If you want to turn to Acts 13, and we'll just do some highlights. And I want to show you repeated themes that we'll find back in Luke as well. For one of the things we know about this speech at the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch is that he goes to the history of Israel. Okay? And there's things they Paul points out about God that are revealed in the history of Israel. Notice in verse 16, men of Israel and you will fear God. So there were God-fearers who came to synagogue. Um, the God of the, this people, Israel, uh, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So he starts with Israel and Egypt, which is something certainly they all knew. So he starts with their history. And he put up with them, then it says, verse 18, he put up the, them in the wilderness. So the first thing he does is point out, well, our we're like our fathers. We uh, made God put up with us. <laughs> okay, we didn't, want, we didn't listen. So God put up with them in Israel, in the wilderness. So even after being delivered through Moses, there's rebellion, which they knew. By the way, that's one really strong evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. When people write the, the history of their peoples, they generally write what's called a hagiography. In other words, you glorify your own history in most cases. Now, 
Sometimes that's not true right now, but generally that's true. But in Israel's history, they recount their own rebellion. God's goodness, God's long-suffering nature, God sends prophets, God cares about them, but we kept rebelling. And so that is thematic. Verse 19, destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, distributed land as an inheritance, 450 years. Judges. Now look at verse 21. Here's how Paul preached it. They asked for a king. God gave them Saul. They wanted a king. Why? So we could be like the nations. Um, That didn't go. So did Saul turn out very well? No, not good. Verse 22, he removed him, raised up David to be their king, concerning whom also he testified and said, quoting scripture, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will, will do all my will, David. And so David was different than Saul and prophesied and given promises. Now look at verse 23. From the descendant of this man, according to the promise of God. Someone pointed this out. One theme you find throughout Luke-Acts is promise. How many of you know God keeps his promises? How many of you know God cannot lie? And God makes his promises. That's why it's impossible for me to believe amillennialism or postmillennialism in a wrong way and say, God made promises, but he's going to break them. Because the promise to bring a restoration ultimately was not grounded in the merits of the people who will ultimately be restored. But it's grounded in God's promise. Because it says in Daniel's 70th week, even at that, they give their alliance to Antichrist. But God saves the remnant. So there's a promise. So the descendants of this man, according to the promise of God, brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Then he mentioned John the Baptist. Now look at verse 26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. Now notice, I, I put in, the, as I took notes about this, I put in, Concurrence, another way to say it is compatibilism. One of the things that's very clear in Luke X is that God allows evil, God uses evil, and God overcomes evil, and through this whole process, his promises come to pass. Eric, could you talk about that doctrine? Yeah, absolutely. Um, compatibilism contains both the evil actions of man but God is going to use it sovereignly for his good. A good example of that is what you see in the book of Genesis with Joseph. Remember, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. And their evil actions, remember, Bob has often told us that God's providence contains both good and evil. So in history, what people tend to do with God is they say, well, God is kind of off the throne during the bad times, and that's all given to us by Satan but the good things, God is on the throne and he gives that to us. And so, like Bob was pointing out before our Sunday school, it's almost a dualism where Satan gives us the bad things, God gives us the good things. But what the scriptures are teaching is God is sovereign over both and he's going to use the evil 
for greater good. So he's going to use the evil actions of the crucifixion to raise up Christ and obviously remove our sin debt. He's going to use the evil actions of Joseph's brothers, and he's going to bring about Egypt as an incubator for Israel so that they survive the famine to preserve the seed promise. And what's very interesting... By the way, that's right where this starts. Exactly. And what's interesting is one of the cores to the gospel is in Acts 13.23, where Bob had just read that, where it says, from the descendants of this man, literally it's the seed, the sperma. And that goes back to the term Zerah in the Old Testament. Remember the first promise of the gospel, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. So listen to this. From the seed of this man, that's David. He's kind of the pinnacle of where all of the the descendants were to lead the seed promise according to promise god has brought you an, to to israel as savior jesus what's well, very interesting in galatians 3:16 paul talks about the promises he says now the promises were spoken to abraham and to his seed and then paul says he does not say into seeds meaning the many but rather to the one and to your seed, that is Christ. There's been a big debate in evangelical circles as to whether or not Paul is playing fast and loose with Galatians 3.16 because he reads into the singular seed. And a lot of people say, well, wait, didn't the promise go from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, and from David? And so they accuse Paul of reading into the text that it was one seed. But remember, historically, what was the first promise? Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. Who is that? It's Messiah. And the rest is details. He's going to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob. We see in Genesis 49, 10, he's going to come from Judah. 2 Samuel 7, he's going to come from David. And so the root of the gospel is the seed promise. Um, William, there was a guy named Willis Beecher wrote a lecture series called The Promise of the Seed, or I'm sorry, The uh, Prophets and the Promise. It was a lecture series from Princeton back in the early 1900s when they actually used to teach theology. And that's one of the things he points out is the root of the gospel is the seed promise. How do you know that this Jesus is who he claims to be? Because he's the fulfillment of the seed promise. Yes, very well done. Thank you. Now look at where we're at here. Um, In verse 26, brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us, the message of this salvation has been sent. Verse 27, uh, Acts 13. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. See that, verse 27? So they had evil intent. They rejected God. They rejected the truth. They rejected Christ. And when they did so, they fulfilled the promise that there would be a rejected Savior. The rejected one. He's, he'll be rejected. He'll be marred. And then in Acts 2.23, Peter says this, that he was crucified at the hands of evil men, but God raised him up. So there's our uh, compatibilism, our concurrence. So the rejection of Messiah didn't destroy God's promise. It helped fulfill it. It needs be that offenses come, Jesus said, but woe to him through whom they come. So at one and the same time, people do what they intend to do gladly, and they're... um, 
incurring moral guilt for these actions, but God is at the same time bringing forth his plan of salvation and rescuing sinners through the Savior. So there's, why would Paul preach this in a synagogue? Because the main apologetic against the gospel is that if this is our Savior, why did he allow the Romans to do what they did to him? What kind of a son of David is defeated by God's enemies? Well, that's why they had, they kept going back to the scriptures. When the Bereans searched the scriptures, they searched scriptures that were cited by the apostles stating that there would be a suffering savior and that the victory over the enemies is yet at the second coming, not what already happened. So that's already thematic. Verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. So the very thing that offended the Jews had to happen because it had been promised in the Old Testament and all that was written included the rejection of the Savior. So I'm telling you, as I've been teaching this, it's hard for evangelicals to accept what God said. Because it's not how we typically think as Americans. But we need to uh, allow the scriptures to help us gain a biblical worldview. But verse 30, God raised him from the dead. The one doctrine preached in every speech in the book of Acts is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I conclude from that, by the way, when I was at North Central Bible College, Pentecostal Bible College, and I went there because it was Assemblies of God people who led us to the Lord. Reverend Phillips there pointed that out. Every sermon in the book of Acts mentions the resurrection. Why shouldn't we follow suit? Why shouldn't we, when we preach from the scripture and preach the gospel, mention the resurrection of Christ, the blood atonement, repentance, forgiveness of sins. Now, as we're in the speech in Pisidian Antioch, God raised him. He appeared after his resurrection. So this was objective. This is not a spirit being floating around and somebody saw an apparition. It's the real Christ. They touched him. He appeared to witnesses. This, these things happen in real history, real time and space. Verse 33, God fulfilled this promise to our children that he raised up Jesus as is written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I've begotten you. Verse 34, he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay. You see, Lazarus died again. Jesus didn't. He ascended to heaven. Uh, then it says here, I will give you the, excuse me, I will give you the sure and uh, blessings of David. He said, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. When did decay considered to be set in? Fourth day. Fourth day. There's our resurrection on the third day. And verse 36, David underwent decay, but Jesus was raised and he didn't. Verse 38, look at this. Acts 13, 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, 
that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Believe on Jesus Christ and trust him alone and you receive forgiveness of sins. So there's that. What did it say at the end of Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus? What what were they told to preach? Their repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. Acts 1.8. So shouldn't we preach that? How could it be? I mention this over and over because it's just an event I, I can't forget. That at the end of four days, thousands of leaders from all around the world gathered in 2008 in uh, Saddleback Church in California, thousands, all wanting to be inspired to Christianize the world through the purpose-driven three-legged stool, business, government, and church. They were all there. Four days, a witness was there. I was only there for the last day. And they never once mentioned one thing about forgiveness of sins. Because we asked at the meeting afterwards with Rick Warren and the leaders, what do you have about forgiveness of sins? They didn't say a word. Why did they not talk about forgiveness of sins? Because then you'd have to admit that there is sin. And that if you're sin, you're lost. If you're lost, you need a savior. If you don't have a savior, you're going to hell. We can't tell about that because then they won't cooperate with the plan. Now, what happened after 2008? Did Purpose Driven take off? And from then on, now it's so big, the world has become Christianized. No. It's, well, don't even hear about it. It's gone. Didn't happen. Okay, so if forgiveness of sins isn't preached, now what, what is the promise? Verse 39, through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. And then he talked about the scoffers that come. That's the first speech. The second one, the next time I teach, we'll address that. And that will be just an overview. And then we'll go on as Paul is heading toward teaching the elders as they come to my latest to meet with him. Does that make sense? You know what? The thing that will bless you and you, whoever... Your disciple, whoever comes to the Lord, whichever of our children serve the Lord, what will bless everyone is being taught the word of God and learning how to read so we understand the author's meaning. Everything written, the meaning is determined by the author, not the reader. The reader doesn't get to decide. We need to find out what the author said. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord for your goodness and kindness. Pray for Eric as he preaches to us that our hearts will be open to learn from your word. We thank you for equipping us so we may be faithful to proclaim these things in your name. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, dear saints.